Let's take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to a little bit of a change here. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Even though we were originally going to be in Acts, tonight, today it has been changed. Colossians 2, we will read verses 1 through 15. Now hear God's word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever, and this is the word that is preached to us today. As we always do, let us pray as we come to God's holy word. Our Father, this morning we do pray that you would give us wisdom as you bring your word to us. We come to it knowing that it is your word, that it is not just the reflections and opinions and ruminations of men, but Father, that this is the word that was breathed out by the Holy Spirit who is God. And so we pray that you will give us a reverent attitude as we approach your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate its meaning to our minds and our hearts. We pray that you will convict us by your word. We pray that it will act as the double-edged sword that it is. And Father, penetrate down into the deepest recesses of our beings and expose all, Father, that needs to grow and change and continue to be conformed to the image of the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, that you would continue the work by your living and active word of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. 
So God, may the words of my mouth today, may the meditations of our hearts today be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you want to, if you have a, I don't know how many of you take notes. If you're like me, you're a, more of a listener and not a writer when you're listening to sermons. I don't always take sermon notes because I tend to learn better just listening. But if you want to take a pencil today and go into your bulletin there and just cross out everything that's listed for the sermon, you can write that the sermon text is Colossians 2. We're going to focus on verses 8 through 10 specifically in the context of Paul's words here that Stan just read for us. And you can write that the title of the sermon is Filled with All the Fullness of Christ. Filled with All the Fullness of Christ. It was God's providence this week in a number of unexpected ways that led me to wait to jump back into our study of the book of Acts and first to want to take in these wonderful words of Paul here in the book of Colossians. Now at Christmas, you remember, of course, we meditated together on the great glory of God in the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And last week, the first week of this new year, we focused on that awesome passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with all of the, remember, the manifest visible glory of God in the book of Exodus as its backdrop in order that we could be reminded how absolutely and and critically important and imperative it is for us to be exposed on an ongoing, on a regular basis to what we call the blast furnace of the glory of Christ which purifies us which refines us, which conforms us more and more and more into the very image of the glory of Christ from one level of glory, Paul says in that passage, to the next. Now in Acts chapter 17, where we were going to be this morning, the Jewish people in the city of Philippi who opposed the gospel that Paul and Silas were preaching after Paul and Silas had been miraculously liberated, remember, from prison, these jealous, unbelieving Jews in the city of Philippi went to the civil authorities and the magistrates in Philippi and tried to get the government's help in suppressing the ministry of Paul and Silas, suppressing the gospel, suppressing the truth of God's word. And one of the tactics they used was to accuse Paul and Silas of turning the world upside down. And that was going to be our focus this morning. And when we jump back into our study in Acts, that's what I want us to focus particularly on. The reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ does exactly that. It turns the world upside down. The unbelieving Jews, of course, thought that was a bad thing. If the Word of God turns the world upside down. But the reality is that it was human sin and human rebellion against God and and the suppression of God's truth by sinful humanity's collective unrighteousness. That's what first turned the world upside down, right? That's what first upended all of the truth and all of the goodness and all of the beauty of the original created order and brought in lies. 
and brought in all of the corruption and destruction and death that comes from believing lies and living contrarily to God's truth in countless ways. And it is the gospel, and it is only the gospel. It is no other ideology, no other system that claims to be true. It is only the gospel that can take all of the world's lies and corrupted philosophies and ideologies and falsehoods and broken systems and worldviews and turn them on their head, turn them back upside down, see? In order that the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God can be restored to people's lives, to people's families, and to cultures and to societies. So, thinking about all of that this week made me think about this passage in Colossians 2, which I think is a great preface to Acts 17. And it's also a good follow-up to everything that we've been meditating on about the great life-transforming glory of Jesus Christ. And what I want to focus on with you most this morning is this warning. This warning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Now, we're starting a new year, and, and in many, many ways, because of all of God's providence in our little church here in Felton, we're starting a new season of ministry as a church. A lot of people have moved out of state. A lot of people have left. A lot of new people have come. A lot of leadership changes. A lot of ministries that just aren't able to be done anymore because all of those people are gone who were leading them and who were filling them. All things new, I think, in 2022. But we need to remain firmly rooted and grounded to the Word of God. That can't change. And we need to heed this warning to not be taken captive by the empty philosophies and ideologies of this world that are, in fact, not just according to ignorance, but according to satanically deceptive lies. So that's why we're in Colossians 2 today. Now, in Colossians, it is the glory of Christ that is the main theme. It is His absolute supremacy and his absolute sufficiency that is, that is Paul's great overarching message. More than anything in this world, Paul wants for people to embrace and to submit themselves to the great incomparable truth and reality of the unsurpassed beauty and glory and worth and value of Jesus Christ of all that He is according to His divine nature as the eternal, unchanging, incarnate God, of all that He's done as the Creator of the whole universe, as the Sovereign Lord, as the Redeemer of His people and of this world, and of the truth of His Word that defines all of reality and that transforms all of life. Paul wants our minds anchored to all of that glory that Christ and His Word are. And in this passage in Colossians 2, 
He's been all through chapter 1 extolling all of the great glory of Christ in all kinds of ways. And here now, Paul gives this massively and, and critically important warning to all Christians that is, again, our focus to not be taken captive by the world's philosophies and, and deceitful ideologies that are according to human tradition and what he calls the elemental spirits of this world. And that warning is a follow-up to everything that he says in verses 1 through 7. And in those verses, what he's doing is he's, he's praying desperately. He's praying urgently for Christians to be strengthened and encouraged and united. And so this is why I want us to, to hang on to this passage together and to always have it in our minds that this is what we need in this world that is that is growing more and more chaotic, isn't it? In all kinds of crazy ways that we would never have even imagined 10, 15, 20, let alone 50 years ago. We look at the news and we say, are you kidding that this is how people are living and that this is what we're legislating? That this is what we're approving of and celebrating in our society? The church needs to be strengthened by the Word of God. The church needs to be encouraged to stand firm on the Word of God against all of the currents of godlessness in our culture. The church needs to be united together on the Word of God. And whatever we're going to do, it has to be standing on that foundation. So that together, as the body of Jesus Christ... We can, Paul says there in verses 1 through 7, we can reach all of the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, of the revelation of the fullness of God's wisdom and knowledge and truth. That's what we need. We, we don't need strategies, we don't need techniques. We need the fullness of God's wisdom and knowledge and truth so that we can shine light into the darkness and so, so that we can remain faithful. And so that we can make disciples. And so that we can herald the great glory of God in this world. And the fullness of God's wisdom and knowledge and truth. And, and all that is true of His redeeming purposes and eternal hope and eternal life that Paul's talking about here in chapter 2. All of that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. No other way. He is the way. He is the truth the life. And so if we know anything in this life, we'd better know Him. And this is Paul's admonition to us in these first seven verses. It's to be strengthened together as the body of Christ by staying rooted and built up in Him and established, firmly established in the faith. And again, I want us to focus mainly on, on what he says next there in verses 8 through 10. But that admonition in the first seven verses for Christians and for, for churches to be strengthened together by staying rooted and built up in Christ and by, being, and by remaining firmly fixed and established in the faith of Jesus Christ. This is a very timely, very, very relevant admonition for our church and for any church as we move into 2022. And in verse 8, Paul follows all of that prayerful exhortation and admonition up with this warning. 
which is so critical for us to understand and then to be able to take heed of, to take seriously, because these days are dark. These days in which we are dwelling in this world are evil days in the 21st century. And the warning is this. Don't be taken captive. Don't be ensnared. Don't be enslaved. Don't get yourself shackled to philosophy and empty deceit that is according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. And you already know, you don't need me to explain to you, that what Paul is talking about are deceptive, worldly, false teachings that are promoted in this world not just by people, but by Satan himself. In verse 4 of Colossians 2 here, Paul says that we need to know the truth of Jesus and His Word well enough that we won't be deluded. That means that we won't be fooled. That we won't be, be deceived by what Paul calls plausible arguments. What does he mean there? Well, a plausible argument is, is something that somebody teaches that sounds good, sounds plausible, sounds like it, it should be true. It's well presented by a teacher who really knows how to teach, who's, who's polished, who's winsome, well-informed. But what they're teaching, the content is contrary to Christ, to His Word, to the Gospel, So, plausible arguments are arguments that contain just enough truth to be dangerously deceptive and are presented in ways that are attractive enough to be dangerously deceptive. Kind of like a a counterfeit bill, right? Or like an odorless, tasteless poison that somebody puts into your drink. And Satan's really, really good at this at subtle, sneaky, crafty lies that are cleverly disguised to look like the truth and that, and that sound to people like they're really good ideas. In, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls the, the, this very thing, he calls them cleverly devised myths. Jesus, right, calls people who promote false teaching wolves in sheep's clothing. They're clever. They disguise themselves. They they try to look like sheep. They try to act and sound like true followers of Christ, but they're not. They're imposters. And they're sneaking in deadly poison of very cleverly disguised false teachings into the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that it's no wonder this is how false teachers work, that it's no wonder that this is how false teaching operates because false teachers are servants of Satan and this is what Satan does. This is his MO. He disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul says. He doesn't manifest himself in his lies as the dark, hideous, wretched, scary evil that he is. He presents himself as something beautiful, desirable. He presents his deceptive lies as as the light of truth, but it's not. He tricks people, he confuses people, he deludes people. And so that's how Satan works. That's how false teaching works. It's like one of those big, bright blue bug lights, right, that people hang on their porches. 
in the summer, and all the flies and the mosquitoes and the bugs can't resist that thing, right? They see that blue light, and it's so beautiful, and it looks so good, it's so tempting, and they fly straight towards that light, and then snap, they're fried. That's false teaching. That's how Satan's lies work. He orchestrates them according to our desires. Paul warns about this very thing specifically, remember, in in 1 Timothy 4. People won't endure sound teaching if they don't like what they're hearing. So Paul says what people are going to do is they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers according to their desires because their ears are itching and they want people to scratch their ears to tickle their ears and so people easily fall prey to cleverly disguised lies that are made appetizing by being in in accordance with with sinful human desires subtly woven in with just enough truth to be dangerously disguised and deceptive and here in in Colossians chapter 2, Paul calls these kinds of deceptive lies, he calls them philosophies in verse 8. Philosophy is just a a composite word that means the love of wisdom. And Paul doesn't mean that the love of wisdom itself in general is a bad thing, of course. That's not what he's saying. What he does here is he gives us a list of several things in verse 8 that disqualify any pursuit of wisdom from being genuine or sure or or true in terms of its content. So he means that any pursuit of wisdom that is first according to human tradition and second according to the elemental spirits of the world and third that is not according to Christ is more than suspect, it is to be rejected. Any truth claim in this world, any philosophy, any pursuit of wisdom and truth about what is real, about what is good, about what is beautiful, about what is right and wrong, about what is wise and foolish, about what matters and doesn't matter, about what's valuable, about what life means, Any philosophy that is according to human tradition or the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ, Paul says, is empty, worthless, and deceitful. The word empty there is a word that means to be devoid of any actual intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. There's all kinds of philosophies that even many Christians and churches have imbibed that are worthless, but that they think are so worthwhile that they're worth neglecting the Bible for. Empty means to be foolish. It means to be worthless. And then Paul uses the word deceit also, right? And the word deceit means deceit. (laughs) It means to mislead. And to deceive somebody into believing something that is false. So literally, Paul's saying, any philosophy, any pursuit of truth, any truth claim 
that's according to human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, instead of being according to Christ, is empty and worthless and foolish and deceptive. It is devoid of any intellectual, moral, or spiritual value, and it will only result in your deception. And those are strong words. But they are Paul's words, and they are Paul's words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They are God's words. And so, let's talk about what it means for a philosophy, a truth claim, a system of ideas and ideologies and teachings that claims to be true and real. Let's talk about what it means for a philosophy to be according to the traditions of men and according to the elemental spirits of this world. And remember, Paul is writing to Christians here, isn't he? To believers, people who have a living faith in Jesus Christ already, people who already possess all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that can only be found in him, right? As he said up in verses 1 through 7. And these Christians are being threatened by some false teachers whose teaching is is minimizing Christ. That's, that's what's happening. They're not teachers who are denying Christ. They're not teachers who are saying Christ doesn't exist. They're not teachers even who are saying Christ isn't the Savior. They're saying that. But what they're doing is they're diminishing Christ. And they're saying that He saves us from something other than what He actually saves us from. They're dethroning Christ. They're causing people to doubt Jesus' supremacy as the only God. They're causing people to doubt Jesus' sufficiency to reconcile us to the only God. And that's something that's gone on all throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ in all kinds of ways. And it's still going on today, right? And it's at the core of what's going on today. Every single doctrinal controversy and social and moral and ethical departure from God's truth that's causing waves in the church and in the world even today, all of it is anchored to a satanic scheme to minimize and to diminish the great supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ and to strip Him of His eternal glory and of His divinity as God and of the sufficiency of His work. And what Paul wants to show Christians in in Colossians is that the false teaching that they were confronted with is not at all consistent with the reality, the objective reality of who Jesus actually and truly is in reality. And the reason is because the false teaching is based solely on the traditions of human beings. So that word traditions just means ideas that people develop in their minds about the nature and reality of the universe, when they don't have access to the actual truth. I mean, we all know, don't we, that 
when something happens that people don't understand, people can have this tendency to develop all kinds of theories about what happened and why. And a lot of times those theories are just plain false, but they become popular theories, right? We have this thing called the internet, which is a vehicle for this sort of thing to happen. Well, historically, it was no different, even though they didn't have the internet. For the longest time, it was believed that the earth was at the very center of the universe and that everything in the universe revolved around the earth and the earth stood still. That, that wasn't true, but with a lack of understanding, that's what people came to believe, even though it wasn't true, and then that became a tradition, didn't it? It was the traditional understanding of everybody that that's how things took place until Copernicus came along and proved it all wrong and showed that the earth actually revolves around the sun. But before that discovery, before coming to learn actual facts, people had had theorized how things work and, and they'd come to wrong conclusions. But the conclusions, the wrong conclusions, became so widely accepted that it became traditional. It was the tradition of men formed apart from the actual facts. And, and so it became just simply assumed by virtually everybody to be true. Still happens today, right? Not just with philosophy or theology or morality or psychology. Happens with cosmology too. There are still people in this world who believe that the earth is flat and that it's not a sphere. Lots of them. And again, this sort of thing happens all the time. We're finite. Our understanding of the world we live in is limited. We're never going to understand it accurately unless. Unless the one who made it explains some things to us. And not only that, see, it's not just a matter of ignorance, is it? It's not just a matter of a limited understanding. Not only are we fundamentally limited in our capacity to know and understand the world the way it works, but but one of the things that God does reveal and tell us in His Word and in the Bible is that we're sinful. So we have an ethical problem, we have a moral problem, we have a spiritual problem. By nature, we are alienated from the God who made this universe. By nature, our hearts resist Him. We, we by nature, reject His authority and His sovereignty. And we don't trust Him and what He says. We don't trust the truth of His divine lordship and revelation. We're hostile in our minds toward God by nature, Paul says. We suppress His truth in our unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1 says. When God says, here I am. I made this world. Here's how I made this world. Here's how it works. Here's what's right and wrong. Here's your place in this world. Here's how you need to relate to me. Here's how you need to relate to one another. Here's how you need to do things. When He says all of that, we suppress it. We go, no, I don't want that. I want to do it a different way. We deny it, we resist it, we refuse it. And we refuse to let the Creator's definition of the world that He made and and the truth and the reality of how it all works, we refuse to let that be the reality that we submit to. Because we don't want to let Him be God over us. We, We don't want to allow Him to be our sovereign Lord and the final authority that we bow to. We want 
like Adam and Eve wanted, we want to be the ones to call the shots for our own lives, do things our own way, chart our own course, march to the beat of our own drum, be the captains of our own fate, all that. And so not only do we have a limited understanding, a limited ability to understand and interpret the world and the meaning of life in the world, but even when God reveals it to us and says, I know you can't figure that all out on your own, so I'm going to tell you, by nature we suppress that in our unrighteousness. And then we look at the world and try to interpret its meaning through the lens of our ignorance and our pride. And so all the time people come to the wrong conclusions and then they enshrine those wrong conclusions as unquestionable, accepted truth with a capital T. When really, they're just human traditions that have been formed apart from and often in opposition to the truths that God reveals. And he's God. He's the creator. He's the sovereign one. He's the all-knowing one. But this is what sinful people do. In our sin, Scripture says we are blind to the truth of God. We're incapable of understanding it because of our prideful, stubborn, sinful blindness. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He needs to repent first, allow God to be God, submit to God's truth and word, and then he'll understand. But sinful people can't do that. They won't. In Isaiah chapter 29, God confronts the unbelief of his people and says that it's like they're in a deep sleep. He's saying, hey, here's what's right, here's what's good, here's what's true, and they, they're just oblivious. When the prophets spoke, the people couldn't even hear it. Their hearts were so hard. It's literally as if he held the book in front of them and they say, well, I can't even see it and I can't even read. That's how deep human spiritual, sinful rejection of God's Word goes. So instead of honoring Him, and instead of obeying Him, instead of worshiping Him, when God's people come into the temple in the Old Testament where they're supposed to be worshiping Him, they don't. They're not worshiping Him because instead of accepting His Word and instead of trusting His truth, God says that their fear of Him, their worship of Him is governed by the traditions of men. By their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own desires, their own impulses, their own pride. So this is what Paul means by human tradition. The false teachers that were in Colossae and Laodicea and in this region had some concept that there was a spiritual aspect, a spiritual dimension to this world. But they were trying to understand it on their own, and they were hopeless to. And they had rejected God's revelation in the Old Testament Scriptures and said, that's not enough, that's not sufficient. We need to add our own traditions to that. And we'll pick and choose what we believe from 
from the scriptures, but we're going to add our own traditions to it. And then that redefined everything that God had revealed and, and painted a picture of how they thought the spiritual and moral and ethical world works, but it was completely wrong. It left the true God, it left the true Jesus, it left the truth about holiness and sin and redemption, it left it all out of the picture. And it substituted all of that truth with deceptive falsehoods. Here's what you really need for your life. And if we do listen to God, and if we do take Him at His word, then who does God tell us is ultimately behind all of this truth-suppressing, tradition-exalting deception. Satan is. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44. Jesus himself said it. Right? This is always Satan's strategy, isn't it? God didn't really say. That was from the get-go in the Garden of Eden. God didn't really say that, did he? That was his strategy. And then to represent God as a tyrant. You you can't really trust him because he doesn't want what's best for you. And then tempt them to reject God's word and replace it with a lie. You're not going to really die if you eat of that fruit. And Eve bought it. And acted on that lie and did what God had commanded her not to do. and, And Adam with her. Believing the lie of the devil that she wouldn't die, she brought death into this whole world. Suppressing the truth and exchanging it for a lie doesn't change the truth from actually being true. Satan is the one who's behind all of this. All the traditions of men who suppress God's truth and their unrighteousness and exchange God's truth for lies and then hurtle headlong down the pathway that seems right to them but leads to death and destruction. That's what's happening in our world today. That's what most people want to hear. Behind every God-denying, truth-suppressing, Christ-diminishing scripture-twisting, gospel-distorting tradition of men is the crafty, wicked scheming of the devil who wants nothing more than to do violence to God by destroying God's image in mankind by deceiving human beings into being captivated by traditions of men that will lead them to eternal destruction. And so Paul says that the empty and deceitful philosophies of the false teachers were on a human level according to the traditions of men. They're born out of human ignorance and sin and pride, but on a much deeper spiritual level. They were deceptive lies that are according to what Paul calls the elemental spirits of this world. And in this context, the word that Paul uses refers to fallen, demonic, satanic, spiritual Beings, fallen angels, the same ones that are mentioned down in verse 15, where he says that God disarmed and put to open shame all of these spiritual rulers and authorities that are in league with Satan because Jesus triumphed over them in Christ and by his victory on the cross. 
So you just, you just have to know, because the one who created the world is telling you how it operates, is telling you what's real. And he's telling you that there are evil spiritual beings that exist in the spiritual realm of this universe, and that you shouldn't ever question that or doubt that. God's word is abundantly clear about it. And they're at work to confuse and to deceive people And if possible, even God's people, even the elect, even the church, to deceive people into believing lies and into living their lives contrary to the truth and into walking down the path that seems right to man but leads to destruction, eternal, everlasting destruction. That's where all false teaching ultimately comes from. That's where the philosophies that are contrary to God's revealed truth have their origins in the cunning deceptions of Satan. False teaching, theologically, right? Empty, deceptive philosophies. What Paul's talking about here are any philosophies, any truth claims, any ideas about what is true and right and beautiful and real in this world that are according to bare human traditions which have replaced what God has revealed. Because human pride and sin suppresses what God reveals, and therefore these ideas are being formed, but not in a neutral sense. They are being formed according to these elemental spirits. They are being formed according to the deceptions of the devil. Instead of being, Paul says at the end of verse 8, instead of being according to Christ. Yes, it's literally that black and white. So, you want to know if something is true or not? You want to know whether it's right and good or wrong and bad? What you must ask is whether it is according to Christ. Whether it is in line with the truth that is revealed in Christ in His Word. Whether it is consistent with what He reveals to be right and good and true and wise and real in His Word and about the universe that he created and that he sustains and that he sovereignly rules. So Copernicus came along and said, you know what? The sun and all of the other heavenly bodies don't revolve around the earth. In fact, it's the earth that's revolving around the sun. Well, is there anything in the word of Christ that that would contradict that? No, there isn't. And so, it can be accepted as true and real. But someone says, well, to abort a child in the womb is okay because it must be a matter of woman's, a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body. Well, is there anything in the Word of Christ that would contradict that position, that statement, that claim? Absolutely there is on so many levels, tons and tons of truth about the nature of human life, about its value as being made in the image of God and fashioned by Him in the womb, about the fact that the the life in the womb is precious to Him, such that to destroy that life at any stage, whether it's in the womb or not, is an abomination that is forbidden in the strongest terms of God's law. And so the whole pro-choice agenda is a worthless, deceptive, 
destructive philosophy that is according to the godless, truth-suppressing traditions of men who want what they want, and more importantly, according to the murderous lies of the devil, who wants nothing more than to destroy life. And it's not according to Christ. So whatever it is, right? The agenda today is the same-sex marriage and LGBTQ agenda that rejects God's law and replaces it with human traditions that are based on human desires that are corrupted by sin, being promoted by the devil, so as to lead people away from Christ and away from truth and holiness and straight into the yawning mouth of hell. The theory of evolution and the origins of life on the earth that deny God's creation, that deny that He made man in His image. The currently popular theory of social justice, critical race theory that is, that is literally godless. Right? It's built on a foundation of denying that God exists. It was born as a political system to replace religion. And it tries to define justice apart from God, apart from God's truth, apart from holiness, apart from God's law, apart from what actual justice is. It's empty, it's worthless, it's destructive. It causes far more division and promotes injustice in this world. The science of the human soul Psychology that has observed some stuff that might be accurate, but as a system, it denies the reality of God. It denies His holiness. It denies human sinfulness. It denies the sufficiency of the Word of God. It denies the inerrancy of the Word of God. It denies the power of the Gospel. It comes to conclusions about what's going on in our minds and our souls that are absolutely fatally flawed. And then it promotes ideas about what to do about human problems that are fatally flawed. Or religious teachings that point away from the true God, that minimize Him, and point to other false gods that don't even exist, and claims that they are more sufficient than Christ. Whatever it is. If it doesn't measure up to the gold standard of the truth and reality that Jesus Christ reveals in His Word and in His nature and in His Gospel, then it's just empty, worthless human tradition at best. And more accurately, it's deceptive, destructive, demonic lies. And it's our calling and duty and obligation by the Holy Spirit's power within us to stand firm for the truth and against all those lies. And this is why it's so critical that we understand God's Word accurately. And it's why God's Word is so central to everything we do as a church. Because if it isn't, you know what happens? When the world says, hey, this is what's right and this is what's just and this is how we can fight for equality, churches who aren't centered and grounded on God's Word go, you know what, that sounds pretty good. And Satan's just rubbing his hands and laughing. 
Our minds and our souls must be saturated with God's word because we need to be rooted in it, Paul says. We need to be built up on it and in it. We need to be established on it. It's got to be the foundation of everything that we are as a church. It's got to be the very definition of everything that we do as a church because that's how we recognize any empty, deceitful philosophy that isn't in accordance with God's word. And they're everywhere out there, aren't they? These deceptive philosophies. Not not just in the secular unbelieving world, which outright rejects the truth of God and the word of God. Even within Christ's church, they've, they've been imported. There are many, many pernicious deceptive lies that vulnerable, poorly taught Christians fall prey to. Subtle, attractive, persuasive arguments that are not according to Christ, but that diminish Christ, that distract from Christ, that diminish His Word, and that divide His people. And so Paul says, Beware, be careful not to be taken captive by anything that is not according to Christ. And the only way is is this. The only way is to be absolutely filled, he says, in mind and heart and life with all of the fullness of Christ, who is, remember from Christmas, all the fullness of God, and who as the fullness of God is the only way and the only truth and the only life. Beware of anything that's not according to Christ, because, verse 9, in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And not only that, as if that's not enough, you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And so here in these two verses, and actually running all the way down to verse 15, What Paul is proclaiming is the absolute and incomparable and utter and complete adequacy, sufficiency of Jesus Christ for everything. He's not a piece of what you need. He is all you need. Verses 9 and 10 sort of sum up Christ's complete adequacy and then And then verses 11 through 15 unpack all of the various ways in which Jesus Christ is completely adequate for all of faith, for all of life, for everything. The one who has him has it all. That's Paul's point. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you've been filled in him. So, the philosophies that are only according to human tradition that are according to these elemental spirits of the world, are empty, are worthless, are dangerous, are destructive, but, but by contrast in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now when you're, if you're out in the desert and you're dying of thirst, do you want to come across a pitcher, but it's empty? Or do you want to come across a pitcher that is full and overflowing with fresh, pure, cold water? Well, the world's philosophies and religions and psychologies and ideologies and theories about life, any of them that aren't according to Christ, that aren't consistent with the truth of His Word, they're just mirages in the desert. 
And if you spend your energy and your time chasing after them, you'll end up with nothing except for death in the desert. But spend your energy, spend your time pursuing Christ. And even if it means ending up with nothing in this world to show for it, you'll have everything. Because only in Christ is all of the fullness of deity. We meditated on that at Christmas, right? He's not just like God. He doesn't just resemble God. He doesn't just contain some of the characteristics of God. The word pleroma there in Greek, fullness means the total quantity. If you took all of the water in the ocean and there was one molecule that you left behind and took all of the rest, you wouldn't have the fullness. Jesus is nothing short of the fullness of God. 100% minus nothing, fullness of deity. All of the wisdom of God, all of the knowledge of God, all of the power of God, all of the strength and authority and mercy and love of God are fully embodied as God's personal revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. That's who He was when He was born. Fully God and fully man. And Paul's point very simply is, because this is who Jesus is, what else do you need? Who else do you want? And can we not say, as Peter said to Jesus, remember in John 6, when everyone was deserting Jesus, he'd go and preach and nobody wanted to listen. Jesus just had this little group of disciples. Everybody else is just bailing. They're going off to the the, the bigger, more fun gatherings. And Jesus says, do you guys want to go away as well? And Peter says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's our stance as a church. And that's what we are as God's people. We are people who are convinced that Jesus is all the fullness of God, all of His truth, all of His wisdom, all of His love, and therefore all that we need. And then Paul does say, following all of that glorious truth up in verse 10, not only in contrast to all of the emptiness of human tradition, not only is Jesus all the fullness of God's wisdom and knowledge and strength and love, all of the deity of God in bodily form, but as if that's not amazing enough, you Christian, you believer in Jesus, you have been filled in Him who is all the fullness of God. I love Paul's words in Ephesians. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. And what is the church, which is His body? It is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. You could spend the rest of your life meditating on that. That's what we are as His people. That's what we are as His church. The church, the body of Christ, we are the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. Now, that doesn't mean that we become divine, like He's the fullness of 
deity in bodily form. It just means that the divine, infinitely wise purpose of God is to flood the lives of weak and weary and sinful and lost and broken human beings like you and like me and like people all over the place out there with the fullness, 100% minus nothing, of His love, of His wisdom, of His truth, of His righteousness, of His own strength, His own life, His own power, His own richness. What else do you need? And that's what He's done in Christ Jesus. He's flooded our lives. He's filled us in Him who is all the fullness of God. Let's close with this. Listen to how Paul prays for Christians in the book of Ephesians because of this great truth that Jesus is all the fullness of God and He has filled us with all the fullness of Himself. And so because all of that's true, Paul prays like this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, so that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Maybe you don't know Jesus today. Maybe you think you do, but you've never truly repented of your sin and believed on Him, and and you've been pretending and acting, but really you're leaning on your own strength and depending on your own righteousness. Maybe you've never received the fullness of divine forgiveness, of divine grace and love and strength that is in Christ alone. He's all you need. Just come to Him. The world's got nothing to offer you. And you've got nothing that can save you. And for Christians who do know Jesus and have been filled in Him, we've got to realize the fullness and the completeness and the absolute sufficiency of who He is and what we have in Him and what we are in Him. Our bodies need physical food and physical water to be healthy. And Jesus is the only true food and true drink that can feed and satisfy and strengthen our souls. You might need physical medicine for your body when it gets sick, but Jesus is the great physician and His healing and His mercy and His life and His strength is everything that your eternal soul needs and ever will need. So don't be deceived by the empty, worthless claims and offers of the world's false religions and godless philosophies and Christ-denying psychologies. Jesus is all the fullness of deity, all the wisdom and strength and mercy and love and life of God. And His Word and His Gospel is all you'll ever need. Here's what Andrew McLaren says, Alexander McLaren, excuse me, says. Through all, or though all the earth were covered with helpers and lovers of my soul 
as the sand by the seashore innumerable. And though all the heavens were sown with faces of angels who cared for me and succored me, thick as the stars in the Milky Way, all of them could not do for me what I need. Though all of these were gathered into one mighty and loving creature, even he would not be sufficient for one soul of one man. We want more than creature help. We need the whole fullness of the Godhead to draw from. And it is all there in Christ for each of us. Whoever will, let him draw freely. Why should we leave the fountain of living waters and hew out for ourselves, as Jeremiah says, with infinite pains, broken cisterns that can't even hold any water? All we need is Christ. Let us lift our eyes from the low earth and all creatures and behold no man anymore. As Lord and Savior and Helper, no one save Jesus. And let us all be filled with all the fullness of God. And let's say amen to that, not just individually, but as a church in this new year. And let's pray together and then sing his praises. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what it means that Jesus is all of the fullness of God and that we have been filled with all of that fullness in the inner man as we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and as we are united to Christ. Father, would you saturate our minds with the truth of your word and make us diligent to study it and to teach it and to preach it and to meditate on it and to hide it in our hearts such that we would never go astray from it such that, Father, we would easily be able to recognize all of the world's empty and deceptive philosophies and traditions of men that Satan is using to deceive. And so, Father, make your church strong and help us to stand. And as we praise you and as we serve you and as we worship you, Father, would you be pleased to work in us and through us to make a difference in this world in calling men out of darkness and into light and making disciples that your glory might be known. All of this we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing on page 11 in response, O Church Arise.